0: We're going to read Acts chapter 18, verses 1 through 4, and then we're going to move all the way down to the end of the chapter uh, and read verses 24 through 28. So Acts chapter 18, starting in verse 1. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla. Because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he he went to see them. And because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked. For they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. Verse 24. Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man competent in the Scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue. But when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And he wished to cross Achaia. To the, bro- to the brothers encouraged him, And wrote the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed. For he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that Christ Christ was Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, so much for your word. Lord, I pray today as we study here in the book of Acts the uh, the life and, and marriage of Priscilla and Priscilla. Lord, that we would learn from their example what it means to be godly husbands and wives, what it means uh, to dedicate our marriage to the service of the Lord. I pray today that you would help us to understand clearly, Lord, that the words I say would not be uh, misunderstood, Lord, that you would guide me in my teaching, Lord, you would most of all be glorified today in this service. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, So, if this is your first week here with us as we're working our way through this uh, series, this is week four of a sermon series that we've been doing on marriage. We've been titled our sermon series, uh, The Marriage Story. Uh, And so far, Matt has done, uh, honestly, just a brilliant job of taking us through examples of marriages in Scripture, starting with uh, Adam and Eve, and then um, last week, looking at uh, the marriage of Ahab and Jezebel in the Old Testament. Uh, and he's done a wonderful job of, of illustrating for us what it means to be a husband and wife uh, and demonstrating for us areas in which many couples, uh, even and especially many couples in Scripture, have failed in the biblical calling, the biblical mandate of men and women uh, to uh, be husband and wife the way God intended. And as we continue on, we see here in Acts, uh, we're going to finally, I think, uh, get a picture that is that is untainted by, as we've seen in, in every other example so far, uh, is not affected by. This isn't to say that this marriage was perfect. We know that these were human beings, therefore no marriage was perfect. But as they are presented here in the text, Aquila and Priscilla, uh, we see, are very faithful both to one another and in the same step, uh, faithful to the Lord. So my title for my sermon today is, Uh, one well-oiled machine, the marriage of Aquila and Priscilla. Uh, And as we look today at marriage, the way God has designed marriage, uh, even in a fallen world, this is the way marriage should look. We're specifically going to consider the qualities of what it means to be a godly man or a godly husband, uh, and what it means to be a godly woman and a godly wife. And we're going to see how these qualities are intended to complement one another in the institution of marriage. Uh, but I want to say that, like as we start, as I start this sermon, what I am saying here, what Matt has said previously in our in our sermon series, a lot of this is is very countercultural. In fact, a, a lot of biblical ideas of what marriage should be runs directly opposed to what the culture says marriage is and marriage should be. In fact, there's a lot of people in our culture today uh, that are are honestly, they hate what it is that I have to say here today about complementary views of men and women in marriage. Even by simply making distinctions between qualities of men and qualities of women, we would be considered by much of the world to be on the wrong side of history, right? Uh, So we know this to be true. With with that understanding, though, uh, we, we plow forward recognizing that the biblical understanding of marriage is the true and original model of marriage that God has set in place in Genesis, and this is how the model is intended to work. Uh, my, this, if you want to write this down, this is kind of be uh, my main objective today is to present this main idea uh, as true. My, my main idea today is that God has designed marriage not to be two individuals working in tandem. But rather as two complementary components that work together as one unit to expand the kingdom of God. We'll say that over time God has designed marriage not to be two individual machines working in tandem, but rather as two complementary components that work together as one unit to expand the kingdom of God. And this distinction that I've just outlined is oftentimes where we get off track. This is oftentimes where people are confused about what marriage is. Because what I have just outlined uh, is the difference between what we could call a companionate and a comprehensive union. These are are two terms that I'm kind of stealing from a guy named Todd Wilson uh, in his book, Mere Sexuality. It's a very good book, very short book. Uh, I would encourage married couples, people who are desiring to be married, um, singles desiring to be married, I would encourage you to pick this book up. Uh, It's a very helpful book on uh, Biblical understanding of human sexuality Um, But in this book He outlines the difference between How the world understands marriage And how we as Christians How the Bible understands marriage to be The world understands marriage To be a a long lasting uh, uh, Relationship between you And this other person Who you have a lot in common You care about each other You enjoy each other's company uh, But but that's about the extent of it. Uh, you kind of are together so long as it suits both of you, right? This is a companion. And we see a lot of this kind of language even coming out in, in marriage ceremonies. If you've ever been in a marriage ceremony and, uh, and someone says, Well, oh, today I'm marrying my best friend. Well, that sounds like a great sentiment. But I'm here to tell you today, I uh, enjoy my wife a lot differently than I enjoy my best friends, Right? It's a, it's a very different understanding of what it means to be a husband and wife than what it means to live together as good friends so long as it as it suits you both. I have best friends, and I have a wife, and they are separate. Because guess what? If my best friends do something really mean to me, I can get new best friends. No big deal. If me and my wife don't get along, we got to work it out. We're, we're stuck with each other, to use that term. Not in a bad way, though. It's a good way. That's what a, a comprehensive union, is. that's why it's different from what the world understands as a companion in marriage. A comprehensive union, or what we would call a one flesh union, is the ideal that, that's set out in Scripture, even in, in the very first chapters of Genesis. This is a union between a husband and wife, a union between two people that is far deeper than a, a great friendship, that is far deeper than, uh, than even an emotional connection. Though all of that is many times present in this case. A comprehensive union is a union of two individuals, both emotionally, but also spiritually and physically. It is the deepest union that you can have with another human being. It's the most intimate relationship that you can ever, ever have. And it was intended to be had with one and only one other person. That's the way God designed it. Matt Chandler calls this union the the mingling of souls. That's how deep this relationship is, this one flesh union that is set out in Scripture is supposed to be. That it is the the mingling of our very souls. So as we we understand then that there is a difference between what we as believers, those who, who adhere to what Scripture tells us, understand us as right and true marriage, it's very different from what, the, from what the world does. But that's the standard that we're understanding. That's the, uh, the model that we're working with. So with that in mind, let's consider then the picture that's given to us through Aquila and Priscilla and see exactly what it means to be committed to a biblical understanding of a comprehensive union of a husband and wife. We're going to do that first by looking at Aquila. Point number one. Aquila, a God-honoring husband. The whole idea of manliness in our culture today is grossly distorted, right? When we think about what it means to be a man, uh, like most of the people in the world today, uh, when we think about what it means to be a man or a man's man or someone who's really manly, usually what we think of uh, is we think of physical abilities or physical attributes, size, stature. Maybe we think of having a big beard or a back hair or something like that. Uh, but, but we think of these, these qualities of manliness uh, that are almost always dealing with physical attributes, abilities, uh, or maybe even qualities that are pretty unbecoming of any human being, such as uh, anger or, or uh, being easily agitated or overly aggressive. That's many times what the world thinks of when we think of what it means to be manly. That's what we're taught in society. Uh, If you're familiar with, um, there's a, a Rhett and Link have this rap battle called a rap battle of manliness. And it's pretty entertaining, it's a lot of fun, but they they work off of these stereotypes of what it means to be manly. And they're like going back and forth about how manly they are. And they're like, oh, I'm so manly, I I killed the first man I met with my first handshake. And and I I shaved my face with a razor sharp machete and like, and all these crazy things. And, And we're, this is the picture that we're given, right, of manliness in our culture today. It's always these physical attributes Uh, power, uh, these types of dynamics, but that's not the picture that Scripture paints for us of what it means to be a godly man or a godly husband. I want to say that we're we're really not told much uh, in our text today in Acts chapter 18 about this husband, Aquila. We aren't given detail after detail about what he was like and what he did and what he ate for breakfast. We're not not given those kinds of details. And so uh, it, it may be hard for us to say just here's one example after another uh, of what he's doing that is, that is godly manliness But we can by way of inference Draw some conclusions about what it means To be a good, uh, a good husband From both what is said about Aquila And also what's not said About Aquila So what can we learn from this man In our, in our story in Acts chapter 8 today Well we can learn from one thing That he was humble We're told that he and his wife uh, Were both tent makers Verse 3 of our text says that they were tent makers. It doesn't say that Aquila was a tent maker uh, and Priscilla did anything else or that Priscilla was, you know, supporting him as a tent maker. Well, we we read they were tent makers, indicating that uh, Aquila shared the responsibility of governing this business that they had with his wife. It was a a shared responsibility. It was a shared uh, duty that they had. Most men today, they want to be the guy on top, right? They always want to be the one that that is in charge, that's ruling the company, ruling the business. But Aquila humbly lets his wife uh, work alongside of him as tent makers. We know also that Aquila was brave. We see this in that he was willing to leave their uh, their home in Corinthians in order to advance the gospel uh, in other parts of the world, especially in Ephesus. And Paul even says in Romans chapter 16 when he when he writes about Aquila and Priscilla that they risked their very necks for him, mm-hmm. indicating that they were brave. And not only were they brave for, for bravery's sake, but they were brave for the sake of the gospel. Mm-hmm. And what we uh, what do we not see from the example of Aquila? Well, first of all, nothing's mentioned to us about Aquila's stature, about his size. Uh, about his facial hair, nothing has mentioned to us about his education or his net worth. Again, all these standards that the world gives us to say this is what it means to be a man's man. None of that is mentioned about Aquila. None of that's relevant with regards to the qualities of a good, godly husband. What does matter, however, in his man's life is humility, bravery, and his commitment to Christ and to his wife. Mature, godly manhood is a call to action. It's a call to humility. It's a call to service. A biblical understanding of manhood looks a lot less like John Wayne. He's like the standard of manliness, right? It's what we call him, the Duke, right? I mean, this is, this is what it means to be manly, to be like John Wayne. But in fact, what the Bible outlines as a picture of biblical godly manhood is what we see in Jesus Christ. As he's washing his disciples' feet. As he's leading them in servant leadership. And instructing them, this is what you are to do. As I am doing, you should do. To quote one preacher, biblical leadership means leading on your knees with a towel, like Jesus did. No one in our culture goes here, though, when they think of manliness, do they? No one in our culture, when they they think of what it means to be a man pictures a guy down on his hands and knees using a towel to clean someone's feet. No one does. Uh, even if people think of Jesus as far as a model of manliness, they're probably not going to picture that. They're going to picture Jesus on, on the ship, calming the sea. Or they're going to picture uh, Jesus rising from the grave or, or one of his great victorious moments. But when does Jesus instruct his disciples on what it means to leave? When he's serving them, when he's washing their feet. This is what it means to be a godly husband, a godly man. It means leading our homes, our wives, and our children with love and respect. That's the picture we see from Aquila, okay? I I know it's not explicitly stated in Scripture, but we can see the attributes of that in this passage. But we also look at the the life of Priscilla. Point number two, a God-honoring wife. As we look at the example of Priscilla, what it means to be a, a godly wife, I think it's helpful for us to consider uh, one of the most profound passages on what it means to be a godly woman. And that's Proverbs 31. And, and I want you to just think of, of, of Priscilla as we make our way through through Psalm 31. I'm not going to read the entire chapter for us. I'm going to read some sections for us. But, but consider this. Psalm chapter 31, verses 10-12 through 12 says, an excellent wife who can find. She is far more precious than jewels. The heart of her husband trusts her and he will have no lack of gain. She does him good and not harm all the days of her life. Verse 23. Her husband is known in the gates when he sits among the elders of the land. In other words, this wife creates a good reputation for her husband. He's more well thought of because his wife is what she is. This godly wife is a credit to the man who married her. In other words, when he's sitting at the gate, the place where all the business was discussed, where, where anyone who was anybody would go and hang out, they're like, ah, there's Priscilla's husband. That's a lucky guy, right? Right? I mean, his reputation was built on the fact that his, husband, or his wife uh, was so godly. Verse 26 says, She opens her mouth with wisdom. And the teaching of kindness is on her tongue. Yes, the teaching of kindness. We're going to get to that later on. Verses 30 and 31 says, Charm is deceitful and beauty is vain. But a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Give her the fruit of her hands and let her works praise her in the gates. This sounds a lot like Priscilla, doesn't it? This picture that we see in Proverbs 31, is it almost seems like a... Like it was written about Priscilla. This is a great picture of what a godly woman looks like. One of the most fascinating parts about Acts chapter 18 comes in verse 26. I think it's one of the most fascinating parts. It's also going to be one of the most challenging parts for some of us. And it's the fact that in chapter twenty, in verse 26 of chapter 18, it was not just Aquila, the, the husband, who's training and discipling, Apollos, but his wife also. Yes, this woman was helping to instruct Apollos, a man. It's important that we not miss this, okay? It, see, a lot of us were, were raised in conservative churches where when we hear this idea uh, of, a, of a woman teaching a man or instructing a man, it immediately sends alarm bells off in our head, right? This seems even scandalous for us to think that this woman was helping to instruct a man. But yet here it is. It's, it's in the New Testament, right? For many of us, the idea of women instructing men is, is running directly in contrary to what we see in other places in Scripture. We think immediately of 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 12. Where Paul says, he says this, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. Well, how do we reckon these two? I mean, we, 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 we hear this, that, okay, can she help teach him, okay, she helped instruct him, but we, we want to, how does that work with 1 with Timothy? It kind of sends us into a state of paranoia at times. But the context in which Paul's writing in 1 Timothy, uh, the context in which he's giving this prohibition against women teaching or having authority over men is in the context of the gathered church. It's in the context of what we are doing here today. This is not a blanket statement that all women are to remain quiet, to not speak. We know that not to be the case. In fact, we desperately, the church desperately needs women who are literate in the scriptures, in the word of God, and willing to speak out against bad doctrine, willing to help grow and mature other brothers and sisters in Christ. The church needs that. I need that. Matt needs that. All of us do. We are not forsaking conservative biblical values when we say this. To say that we need women to help disciple and grow brothers and sisters in Christ. I am well within the bounds of scripture saying that. This is a good thing. We see it in the book of Acts. It's a good thing. It's a godly thing. But in addition to that, it's an attractive quality. A part of what makes the Proverbs 31 woman so attractive What does this say? 26, she opens her mouth with wisdom and the teaching of kindness is on her tongue. Verse 30 says, charm is deceitful and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. This is an attractive quality in women. Now, I've got a little bit of a confession. Um, Matt and Robert already know this about me, but whenever I was growing up, in high school especially, and still kind of now, uh, I always loved like the typical cheesy like youth groupy things. Okay, I, I'm guilty of that. I, just mark me down, guilty. See those silly songs. The other day, me and Matt were having a laugh over the song "Cartoons" by Chris Rice about like what happened. Cartoons got saved. There's just silly things. There's this one, this really silly song. Uh, it's called uh, "Baby Got the Book," and if you're not familiar. Uh, with the song you maybe can, can understand a little bit of the context uh, This guy is uh, singing about uh, this girl who has a big Bible And he says, I like big Bibles and I can't lie And and this guy is, is admiring this woman for the, for the size of her Bible and, and he's talking about, oh man, you can see that that woman is a woman of God Look at that thing Hey, I want to read you just a few lines from He said, uh, I'm trying not to break into a rap because I, I do like this song he said, so your girl likes paperback? Well, I ain't down with that. My girlfriend's hot, and her Bible's rocking, and she's got good doctrine. And he says, because it's worn and it's torn, and I know that girl's reborn. I mean, it's a really, I, I'm, it's a stupid song. I know it is. It's silly. But there is an element in this song, in this parody, that, that I resonate with. This idea of a guy that sees a girl. Who clearly is dedicated to the strip to the scriptures, unashamedly, reading God's word. Like her Bible has seen some action. It's got some notes in it, it's it's worn up, it's torn. And I don't want to be honest with you, just uh, just be personal here. Like one of the most attractive things about my wife, one of the times when I find her the most beautiful, is when I see her teaching God's word. When I get up in the mornings and like she's sitting there on the couch, deep into God's word, deep in prayer. Not only am I a little bit convicted when that happens, but I'm also just like, damn, that's so amazing, so beautiful. Even when she's, you know, rebukes someone or corrects someone, she's so good at it. she does it in gentleness and love. Honestly, in ways that guys are bad at rebuking people, and I, I can tell you there are people who will attest to the fact that I have rebuked people poorly, aggressively, angrily. My wife, like a lot of women, have a way of doing that in a way of tenderness, loving kindness, and it's attractive. It's beautiful. So ladies, I appeal to you. Do not do what some have done. Don't use God-given roles as a cop-out for biblical ignorance. Don't think that just because the role of preaching or the role of headship in the home <coughs> is not assigned to you that you have no need to study the scriptures. Follow Priscilla's example. The church needs women who are committed to the study of God's word. And the discipleship of others. So study God's word. Study theology. Be able to correct and disciple other people just like Priscilla. So now that we've looked at these two components uh, of of a biblical marriage, we have a godly man as seen in Aquila. We have a godly woman as seen in Priscilla. Let's see what it means for them to be united. So point number three is a true picture of complementarianism. And as I've already said, the, the word complementarianism on its own carries with it so much baggage, right? It's loaded. I mean, we know it is. But we see something amazing here in this couple in the New Testament. We see, for one thing, Priscilla and Aquila are mentioned six times in the New Testament. And every single time one of them is mentioned, the other one is mentioned along with them. Never once do you see one of them mentioned along it is always Priscilla and Aquila, or Aquila and Priscilla. They are always mentioned together. This husband and wife live together, work together, worship together, and serve together. Unlike what we've been demonstrated in the in the past marriages that we've looked out looked at uh, in this previous studies, we do not see in this relationship as we have been shown it. Any hint of deviation from the biblical understanding of complementarianism. Each and every one of the marriages that we've seen has, has run into problems, has failed in one way or another because of this uh, uh, upsetting of the roles that God has given us. We see in the garden, Adam and Eve. What happened? Adam took his responsibilities and Eve took over. And what happened? We saw a disarray. In The story of Sarah and Abraham. What happened? Abraham cowers out and Sarah does what she can do. I mean, we see this over and over again. Ahab and Jezebel. I mean, that was just a disaster in and of itself. I mean, nothing went right in that marriage. But what we see here is we see two people truly operating as two components, one machine. We see in their marriage a one-flesh union. And this should be the result of true complementarity. The problem is that the ideal for marriage that God instituted in Genesis has been distorted and misunderstood over and over again. There are so many misconceptions about biblical complementarianism that we see them demonstrated both inside and outside the church. And I want to take it a moment just to, just to set straight up a couple of these misconceptions. The first misconception is that the Bible presents women as inferior to men. This is what people think. And honestly, this is not just something that's outside the church, but inside as well. But this cannot be farther from the truth, right? What did we see when, when God created male and female in Genesis 1? He created them equally. Both of them were made in the image of God. The Bible represents marriage as a union of equals, but with different roles. On the one hand, it's true that there are some areas in which women are weaker than men. But the, also, the same thing is true that there are areas that men are weaker than women. As I talked about with Kaylee earlier. Men are usually, uh, not always, but usually bigger, stronger, uh, more firm, more harsh in the way they handle things than what women are. And women are usually more gentle, more compassionate, more kind, and and smaller in stature than men. And this, honestly, is a part of what's behind the word complementarity. Complementarianism. It's the idea that we have, men, have areas in which we need help. We are weak. And guess what? Usually those areas are the same areas in which women are strong. And the areas in which uh, we are strong, they are weaker. This is what it means to complement one another. To work as two parts of a whole. This in no way, however, indicates that women are inferior to men. Never once do we see indications of superiority in the partnership of Aquila and Priscilla. Rather, what you see are two equals working toward a unified goal. But one of the major reasons that people feel this way is because of the misunderstanding that people have about the words headship and submission. (coughs) This brings up the next misconception, which is that complementarianism gives men the right to rule over women. This This is an understanding that people have. And again... This one, probably even more so than the first one, is pervasive in many churches. There's a misunderstanding embedded here. This misunderstanding uh, says that the concept of headship is a a right to rule over women. That's the way it's viewed in many cases. However, the complement of headship is not a right to be wielded, but a responsibility to be born. I want to say that again. The concept of headship is not a right to be wielded, but a responsibility to be born. This is a false notion of headship that it is somehow the man's right to say and to command authority over the woman. This is the idea of headship that says I get the remote control, I get to choose where we go eat, I get the best chair in the living room. This is a gross misunderstanding of what true headship is in marriage. But unfortunately, even in many men in the church, they've bought into this understanding.
1: Many men claim
0: complementarianism boldly and proudly because in their mind, complementarianism is, I get it my way. I get to be the boss. I get to do things the way I want to do them. It means a lifelong power trip for me. And even worse than this in many cases... Husbands go so far as to consider themselves like Christ to their wives. They point to Ephesians, saying, Ah, see, Paul says the husband is the head of the wives. Christ is the head of the church. Therefore, I am Christ to you, right? That means I get to rule over you. I get to tell you what you're doing wrong, what you're doing right. I get to tell you what is wrong, what is right for you to do. But this could not be farther from the truth. Rather than assume the role of Christ in the wife's life, a husband is called to advocate for the role of Christ in her life. It is his responsibility, the husband's responsibility, to lead the wife in submission to Christ to whom both he and she will ultimately give account. The husband does bear the weight of responsibility, though, for the spiritual care of his wife and his children. The concept, then, of headship is not a right to be wielded, but a responsibility to be And if a husband doesn't feel the weight of responsibility of headship and only sees the benefits, he's misunderstood. And honestly, probably doesn't care at all about his wife's spiritual welfare. This is the proper understanding of headship. This, This understanding is far harder for men to accept than that false understanding of headship. But when this biblical picture of marriage is carried out, it produces... Amazing results, and we see that from Priscilla and Aquila at the end of chapter 18. The results of this kind of marriage are far-reaching, to be sure. We actually we didn't mention it, but in between, you may have noticed when we started in Acts 18, we were in Corinth. When we finished chapter 18, we were in Ephesus. The reason that happens is because in the middle of that chapter, what we what we didn't touch on, because it's it's just mentioned in passing, which is amazing, uh, but Aquila and Priscilla uproot and leave Corinth. They have a business. They have a home. They have a life. And Paul comes and takes them on his missionary journey and they say, let's do it. They ended up staying in Ephesus, leaving Corinth, going to Ephesus to establish a church that met in their house. It's almost mentioned in passing as though it's just Completely common, completely normal, what else would they do? I mean they're committed to the gospel. Of course they're gonna up and leave. It's it's almost forsaken that these people are so committed to the gospel that it's obviously we're gonna up and move. It's what the Lord has called us to. The picture that we see in the last section of Acts eighteen is of two people united in one flesh, living life on mission for the gospel of Christ. This is the goal of marriage. Life on mission. Marriage on mission. Point number four. Marriage on mission. This is the goal of what marriage is. Not to have a house, the picket fence, a pool, and a golden lab. That's not the goal of marriage. That's not the point of marriage. The goal is for two individuals to be united as one flesh, taking on the cause of the gospel. There are many who have taken Paul's uh, teachings in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and misunderstood them. And, and taking them far beyond their intent. And First Corinthians chapter seven, if you're familiar, is where Paul writes and says, uh, and says, "Hey, uh, it may be better for you single guys to remain single as I am." What does he say? He talks about the married person is, has divided interests, while the single person is focused only on the things of God. And we, we, there's a temptation to take this verse and say, "See, you know, the gospel is just going to be advanced more if you're single." But that's not what Paul's writing here. Paul's not saying here that a single person will be more successful in ministry than a married person, or that marriage somehow hinders the spread of the gospel. That's not Paul's argument here. Paul is merely giving practical encouragement to those who are single. But listen, Paul is pro-marriage. In fact, the expectation in Paul's letter to Titus, to Timothy, is that pastors will be married, and that they will be a husband of one wife, or a one-woman man. The expectation for leaders of the church is that they'll be married. Marriage is a good thing. If it were true that single men were more effective in ministry, then wouldn't it be the expectation in Scripture that elders would be single? That, that deacons would be single? That people were going to leave the church to be single? But that's not what we see. Instead, the opposite of the truth. And I would argue that a biblical, complementary marriage dedicated to the Gospel is one of the most effective instruments for Gospel ministry. And I would use myself as an argument. And Matt, I think, would affirm this as well. I am a better pastor. I am a better minister of the Word of God because of my wife. Amen? Matt? Amen. Amen. Robert? Amen. Amen. I am not in any way hindered by my wife, but in fact, I am better for it. And our church is better for it. For my wife, for Matt's wife, for every godly wife in this church, we are better off for it and have more opportunity for gospel proclamation because of it. We are not hindered by marriage. The gospel is not hindered by marriage, but is furthered in marriage. Just ask Apollos, right? This man became one of the greatest preachers in the New Testament. His name is mentioned alongside like Peter and Paul. And yet, Apollos owes his ministry to the faithful discipleship of this godly couple. Not just one of them, but both of them. they were one flesh union United on mission Had it not been for their leadership Their discipleship Their willingness to take on the cause of Christ And disciple Apollos Would not have been the preacher that he was I know that we have a lot of people in here That are from all walks of life I'm not speaking exclusively to married people in this room And I know that We have people from all walks of life in here Some of you are in a relationship Some of you are engaged Some of you uh, have been married for a while some of you are single with no prospects. But I would encourage you today with a singular goal for all of us. Does anyone in here uh, know what the first question in the Westminster Catechism is? If you do, let me hear it. What's, what's question number one in the Westminster Catechism? Who is the chief end of man? Huh? Who is the chief end of man? What is the chief end of man? What's the answer to that question? To glorify God. And? Enjoy Him, and enjoy him forever. That's right. Question number one, the Westminster Catechism. What is the chief end of man? And the answer, man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. I would argue today, we could take out the word man, substitute it for marriage, and that would be an accurate statement. What is the chief end of marriage? The chief end of marriage is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Let this be our goal in marriage. If you're newly married, the goal of your marriage should be to glorify God and enjoy him forever. If you're engaged, let the goal of your future marriage should be to glorify God and enjoy him forever. If you are single in here today, if you have been married for a thousand years in here today, let the goal of your life be to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Whether single, whether married, Look to the example of Aquila and Priscilla and pursue this in. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you so much for your word. Lord, apart from it, Lord, we would have no way of knowing you, we would have no way, Lord, to know ourselves even. Lord, we thank you that you have revealed yourself to us. Lord, I pray for today for the married couples in here, Lord, for those who are pursuing marriage, or for everyone in here, that we would understand the goal of marriage is to glorify you. Gospel proclamation. Marriage on mission. Lord, I pray that people that are outside of our church, when they think of couples in our church, that they would think of couples that are on mission in their marriage. I pray for myself. Lord, that if I seek to not only be a faithful minister, a faithful student of God's Word, Lord, that you would make me a faithful husband with my wife. Recognizing, Lord, that the more we as men serve our, our wives, our families better, the better we're going to serve the kingdom of God. I pray that would be true for us here. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Now, if I could get um, Matt and Adam, if you would come on up again and take the Lord's supper here at Redeemer Fellowship Church we take the Lord's Supper every week and every week we tell you the same thing uh, that we have a few qualifications Uh, first of all, if you are not a follower of Christ, uh, the Lord's Supper is not for you this is something that we do uh, in remembrance, in recognition in celebration of what it is that Christ has done for us in our lives Christ has never uh, if you have never experienced Christ as your Lord and Savior, if you have never uh, put your faith and trust in Him, then this is not you. You are not represented in, in what Christ has done here. So we would encourage you to not take, but to come and ask us more about what it means to take the and Supper, more about what it means to be a follower of Christ. If you are here and you have not been baptized into the local church, uh, we would encourage you not to take, and to come and talk to us about what it means to be baptized. If you are here today and you have sin in your heart that you have not confessed, then I would encourage you, Confess your sin before you take the Lord's Supper. If you need to seek reconciliation from someone, uh, by all means, if you can do that here today, do that before you take it. If you can't do that here, then just wait. and just wait and take the Lord's Supper with us next week after you've been reconciled. And furthermore, uh, after you receive the bread and the juice, we would ask that you just hold on to it and wait so we can all take it together. Uh, But before we do, we have a statement on uh, the Lord's Supper the supper of the Lord Jesus was instituted by him the same night he was betrayed. It is to be observed in his churches to the end of the age as a perpetual remembrance and display of the sacrifice of himself in his death. Go to the next slide. It is given for the confirmation of the faith of believers in all the benefits of Christ's death, their spiritual nourishment and growth in him, and their future engagement in and to all the duties they owe him. The Supper is to be a bond and pledge for their communion with Christ and each other. Let's pray. Lord, right now as we celebrate the Lord's Supper, Lord, I pray today that our hearts would be right. That what we are doing here, Lord, is not just a a silly act, a, a ritual, that is something that we have to do in order to end service. Lord, that we would recognize that it is, Lord, a representative of us feasting on Christ. Lord, I pray that that as we do this, we would be reminded that your grace would would be poured out upon us. In Jesus' name, amen. amen.